Today, we're going to be looking at the first three verses of the first chapter. So let me read them. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us in his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so we come to these great, great verses, this uh, amazing uh, introduction to the epistle. And this is one of those passages that every time I read it, I'm just, um, I'm awed by it. Uh, theologians refer to passages like this as uh, Christological passages. So they're, they're passages in the New Testament that really go into um, great detail in describing just who uh, Jesus Christ is. So this is one of them. Colossians chapter one, we find a, a similar kind of a passage. Of course, uh, John's gospel chapter one is another uh, strongly Christological passage. But these are all texts that in, in some sense are daunting when you come to them. Because, you know, you look, you look at this and you think, how, how could I ever do justice to what is stated here? How, how could we ever, you know, thoroughly uh, plumb the depths of the, the person of Christ and who he is? But, it, but it's such a tremendous passage. And of course, the author, who is concerned that his writers are, are drifting away because they've lost sight of the glory and the greatness of Christ, that he's motivated by that to, to bring before them once again uh, the glory of the Lord. And so that's what he does here in the passage. Hebrews, as we pointed out, was written to those who were faltering in their profession of faith. Remember, we talked about how um, some years have transpired now. They joyfully embrace the message of Jesus as the Messiah initially, but now as time has gone on and things haven't maybe worked out exactly like they had hoped that they would and the Lord hasn't come back and set up the Davidic kingdom at this point, um, they've begun to lose heart and they're considering uh, going back to the, the former things but they were faltering because they had lost sight of the glorious majesty of Christ. That's what had happened. As we sometimes say it, they, they took their eyes off the Lord and they got their eyes on the world around them and they got their eyes on their own situation and their own circumstances and they lost sight of the Savior. And so the writer sets out to immediately correct their error by setting forth the unique glory of the Son of God. And that's what he does in the verses that we just read. Now, it is quite often the case in our day as well 
that those who are faltering in their faith are doing so because in some way or another, they have lost sight of the supremacy of the Son of God. Listen, if we lived with the constant understanding of the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ, we would not falter. We, there would be no consideration of going back to the world. We would realize that, that there's nothing to go back to. If we take these verses to heart that we uh, are looking at here today, this is going to keep us from ever drifting away. It's going to keep us fixed and focused because if we keep all of this at the forefront of our mind, we realize that, that Jesus is, is it. He's the ultimate. There, there is nothing else. There is nothing that's even remotely comparable to him and his glory. So if, if we've drifted at all, the surest way back to where we should be in our relationship with God uh, is uh, through laying hold of who Jesus truly is. And according to our text, listen, he is the heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the express image or exact image of his person. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the redeemer. He is the ruler of the universe. Those are the seven things that the author uh, begins this epistle with, where his objective is to bring them back to seeing the greatness and the glory of the Son of God so that any thought whatsoever of going back to uh, a dead religion or going back to the world, that it's just completely obliterated from their minds. And so we want to look at these seven points. And, um, you know, actually, if you look at each one of these seven points I mentioned, you, you could preach for years on these topics, but we're going to attempt in just a few minutes to do justice to the passage. So may God help us. Beginning with, he is the appointed heir of all things. God has appointed his son. The father has appointed his son to be the heir of all things. Listen, Everything belongs to Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything belongs to Jesus Christ. We're told in the Psalms, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything in the earth is the Lord's. Everything that there is belongs to him. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter one that all things were made by him and they were made for him. So this is a reality that we need to lay hold of. Everything belongs to Jesus. He is God's heir. He's the heir of all things. And listen, Paul tells us in Romans chapter eight that we are joint heirs with Christ. So if we're feeling like we're missing out on something, if we're feeling like, oh, maybe I need to go back to something else because uh, you know, at, at this point, Jesus isn't quite doing for me what I expected him to do. Uh, hold on. Remember, he's the heir of all things, and you're a joint heir with him. 
So everything belongs to the Lord. Now, a bit of a side note, but it's related. Uh, Islam, of course, is a big issue in our world today. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but the, but the stated goal of Islam is world domination. This is what uh, a, 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 a worldwide caliphate is what uh, Islam has always sought. They've, they've always come short of it, but nonetheless, this is what they're seeking. And the interesting thing to me about this is it's not so much that within Islam that the whole world is converted to Islam. What's more important in Islam is that the whole world is subjected to Islam. And so for Islam, really, it's, it's not so much about people or souls, it's more about real estate. So the Islamic vision is that uh, uh, Islam would control every square foot of real estate, that planet Earth would come under the dominion of uh, Allah uh, through, through Islam. And the reason that's interesting to me is because really what we see is those principalities and powers behind this, uh, this religion, what they're seeking to do is take ownership of that which belongs to Christ. The earth is his and everything in it. And you know, if you think about it, we see in the news with ISIS, which is a uh, ISIS, what they are is the Islamic State, right? Uh, they've, they've established a new caliphate. Now, their, their uh, geographical uh, dominion is, is somewhat limited at this point, but their intentions are to dominate the whole world. And what do we see them doing as they go into these different places, as they go into these communities where they have ancient churches and uh, ancient um, uh, monuments and things that, that uh, point back to the Christian era and so forth, what do we see them doing? We see them seeking to obliterate all of that. We see them going in and destroying these churches, destroying these monuments and things, because again, the goal is to, to rid the earth of uh, any, any references to Jesus, but you can't do it. It's impossible because the earth is his and everything in it. And think of that Psalm that we read together this morning, because the Psalm is connected to what we're talking about. Remember there in the Psalm, the Lord is speaking, uh, the father is speaking to the son and he says, ask of me and I shall give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. This is what God has done. He's given the earth and everything in it to Christ. Now, here's what we need to remember. And the Psalm reminds us, as we oftentimes find ourselves, you know, here we sit, we're sort of wringing our hands. We're, we're you know, we're feeling so defeated sometimes. We're thinking, oh God, look what they're doing. And, you know, listen to what they're saying and how they're blaspheming you and how they're, they're denying the... Um, you know, they're, they're denying that Christ is the Lord and they're trying to, to drive, even, even in our own country, they're trying to rid the culture of any uh, presence of Christ and, and getting, getting Christ out of the, the public sphere. And, and so often we find ourselves, we're, we're so uh, overwhelmed by that and we're so discouraged by that. And we sit on earth sometimes wringing our hands over this, but remember what God is doing. God is sitting in heaven and he's not wringing his hands. God is sitting in heaven and he's laughing. This is a joke. You think 
you can overthrow me? You think you can overthrow my son that I've appointed heir of all things? No, God says, no, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Oh, that reminds me as well. I think, uh, you know, today, one of the great evils in the world, we hear from the Islamic world, we hear it from the, the, the secular humanist world, that one of the great evils in the world is Zionism. Oh, Zionism is bad and those Zionists. But you know what? God has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. And it's just a matter of time before the Lord demonstrates to all of the world who's in charge. Jesus, he owns it all. And he's going to come at a certain point and his throne is gonna be set upon Mount Zion and he's going to rule with that rod of iron that we read about. He's gonna rule the world from that very place, demonstrating once and forever that he is truly the heir of all things. So, since that is the case, we should not be looking around at the world and, and neither should we be uh, lamenting the, the seeming uh, advance of, of the enemy because we know that his defeat is soon, but nor should we be looking around and enviously longing for the, the things of the world that maybe other people wicked people are, are having control of, and we're looking and thinking, well, you know, that seems unfair, and we, we should get a little bit of, the, of the, the blessing as well. Our day is coming when our king sits upon the holy hill, being there declared as the appointed heir of all things. So he's the appointed heir, but then we're told, secondly, that he is the creator of all things. Jesus is the creator. And many, many times over, if we go back to the very first verse of the Bible in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then the further we go in the biblical revelation, the more it becomes um, clear that the father is the, the architect, if you will. He's the, he's the mastermind behind creation, but it's the son who actually brings the creation about so everything was made by Jesus Christ. And I love the way John put it in the third verse of the first chapter of his gospel. He put it so emphatically, he said this, he said, all things were made by him and without him, not one single thing was, that was made. Now, with, without him, not one thing was made. I've written it out wrong here, so let me just remember it. Because <laughs> I'm confusing myself as I look at what I wrote. How did I write that twice? Not one single thing that was made was made without him. Not one single thing. There's nothing that exists that wasn't made by Christ. He made everything. I mean, think about that. You know, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think of Jesus in um, ways that are so far below the way we should be thinking of him. We, we forget, and like I said, we feel bad and sorry, and oh, Jesus, you know, how come you're not doing anything? No, he's, he's made everything. He made it all from the largest heavenly bodies, 
contained within the hundred billion stars multiplied by the hundred billion galaxies that were told about by the scientists. So the largest of those heavenly bodies, he made that, but he also made the subatomic particles that fill the universe. He made everything. There's nothing that was made, not a single thing that was made that was made apart from him. He made it all. The earth that we stand on, he made it. Every insect, every animal, every plant, every tree, the water that's unique to our planet, the water that we drink and we clean with and we are refreshed by, the air that we breathe, he made all of it. And of course, he made us as well. So he is the creator of all things. And so as we go about our daily life, it's so easy to, to just lose sight of this. And we lose sight of this and we get worried and we start fretting. And then sometimes we get tempted to think that maybe there's, there's something that we're missing out out there on. And we, you know, we, we get pulled back in the direction of the world. But if we just stop and think, you know, as you go through your day, as you walk out of your house in the morning and you look at you know, the, the flowers, the bushes, the trees, the, the beautiful sky above you, you stop and think, Jesus made all of this. He made it all. As you, you know, occasionally you see um, an insect here or there, right? Uh, you know, you, you look at that thing and sometimes you look at an insect and you think, wow, this, you know, this is like a, uh, like a little monster or something, you know? And wow, how amazing the, um, just the, the, the creative, uh, the wisdom that must have gone into this, this little thing. You, know, you look at that or you look at an animal, any kind of an animal. You look at a, you know, maybe there's a hummingbird in your backyard that's just, you know, they're um, hovering uh, around a, a flower or something like that. Here's my point. When we look at these things, do we stop to think, wow, Jesus made these things, we should, because he did. That's what the Bible tells us. He made all of these things. He's the creator of everything. When we look in the mirror, when we, when we marvel at our own ability to think and to feel and to love and, and all of those things that are, that are part of us as, as humanity, it's all because he made everything. He's the creator of all things. But then the author goes on and he says that he is the brightness of God's glory. He is the brightness of God's glory. Jonathan Edwards, the, um, the great American theologian from back in the uh, 1700s, he said that the sun and, and all of creation, Jonathan Edwards had an interesting take on things you know, sometimes we look at something in creation and we say, oh, that, um, that reminds me of, you know, some, some aspect of maybe God's character or nature or something like that. Jonathan Edwards says God made creation the way he did as a, as a testimony. He's speaking through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows, uh, or the firmament shows his handiwork. Day into day utter speech. Night into night shows forth knowledge. So Edwards says that 
regarding the Son, in the Son itself, you have a picture of, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I like the way he put it. He said, the Father, the Son itself, the, the core of the Son is the Father, the rays of the Son are Christ. And that's really what the author is saying right here. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the brightness. He is the outshining of who God is. When you go out today and you look up into the sky and you look at the sun, what are you seeing? Well, in a sense, you're, you're seeing the sun, yes, but you're not seeing the sun. You're seeing the rays of the sun. You're seeing the radiance of the sun. And that's what the author is telling us, that Christ, he is the radiance. He is the brightness of God's glory. So it's, we see God through Christ. He is the one who is shining forth who God is. I love the passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul tells us that it is the God who, um, <laughs> you know, they say when you get past 50, your brain starts to fail. I am living proof that that is true. It is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown, I remember when Pastor Chuck used to do this all the time. He'd forget something, you know, and he'd blame it on his age, so I'm just following his example here. <laughs> it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then Edward said one more thing. I'll just add it. It's not uh, necessarily connected to what we're talking about. But he said the warmth of the sun is the, is the Holy Spirit. I think, oh, that's such a beautiful picture. The sun itself, the Father, the rays of the sun, the Lord Jesus, the, the warmth that we feel. That's, we experience God through the Spirit. And so he is the brightness of God's glory. And then he says he's, he is the express image of his person. What the author is saying to these Hebrews, what he's reminding them of and what he's telling us, subsequent generations, is exactly what the Bible tells us over and over again, that Jesus is the human manifestation of God. He's, he is the express image of his person, or another translation reads, he is the exact representation. And this refers to the image on a coin. This is what would have come to the mind of the reader at Paul's time. It would come to mind the image on a coin which perfectly corresponds to the image on the die. So what the author is telling us is that Jesus is therefore completely the same in his being as the Father. However, there is still an important distinction. Both exist separately as do the die and its image. So you've got the coin with the image on it, but then you've got the die from which it was made, but the image on the coin is exactly what you have on the die. And so with Christ, Jesus said himself, he said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. So if we want to know what God is like, and we've said this many times before, but 
let me say it again. If you want to know what God is like, this is what you do. You open the New Testament and you read through the Gospels. You read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and as you see Jesus in action, as you see him uh, living out his life and relating to people, and as you see his love and his mercy and his compassion and all of those things, you're seeing God. He is, he is the exact representation of his person. And then he says this, he is upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, here's the amazing thing to me in this statement here. He says he upholds currently, presently upholds all things by the word of his power. You know, the Bible does not teach that God uh, created the universe and put a, uh, a bunch of uh, laws uh, into it. Uh, we call them laws of nature sometimes or laws of physics. And then he just kind of let it go off on its own. The Bible says that he is continually sustaining it. He is currently holding everything together. This is how immediately involved in the universe Christ is. He is currently holding it all together. Now, the average person today, especially the secularists, but even we as Christians, many times we use terms like the laws of nature or the laws of physics, but these are just what we call the things we observe, but don't know the why or how of these things. You know, any honest scientist will tell you uh, when you talk about, well, they say, oh, well, that's because of the law of gravity. Well, what is that? Well, you know, that it, it, is, it is what it is. We, we, we don't know what it is. Well, why is it that way? Well, we, we really don't know why it's that way. But, but th this, is our, this is our best shot at it. See, we, we really don't know. Here, we are told that Jesus Christ is the one who sustains the universe and keeps it inhabitable for us. You wonder why everything just goes on like it goes on? Why the earth is in the orbit that it's in and it stays there, why the earth rotates the way it rotates, how, how it is that we can depend on uh, the sun rising in the morning and setting in the evening, or at least that's what it seems like it's doing to us, but it's obviously scientifically doing something a little different. But, but anyway, there's, there's this consistency. There's this, uh, we, we don't have to worry that, well, maybe we're gonna wake up tomorrow and the earth's gonna veer off of its course somewhere. It, it doesn't happen, right? It stays, everything stays the way it is. And that's because Jesus is holding it all together. Scientists today are talking more and more about uh, what is called the fine-tuning of the universe. And there's two, there's two uh, responses to the fine-tuning of the universe. Those who believe in a creator are very excited about it. Those who don't believe in a creator are dismayed by it. But both agree that uh, the fine-tuning of the universe is a reality. They are noting the absolute precision in distance, size, weight, gravitational force, etc. All scientists today are, are recognizing that this is a fact, that everything is so, they call it fine-tuned because it's so finely tuned that if you, if you changed it in the slightest manner, nothing would exist as we know it. Life on earth would never exist. 
We couldn't live if things were just slightly altered. You know, I mean, think about it. If you're boiling water, you don't, you're not all that concerned to get the, the flame at any at a very precise point, are you? You just turn it on, you set the water pot on there and you think, oh, it's gonna boil eventually. If I turn it up, it might boil faster. If I keep it low, it'll boil slower. You're not that precise, but God's not like that. The universe isn't like that. It is very, very precise. Let me give you an example. If you could take a tape measure and stretch it across the universe, which scientists say is between 91 billion and 150 billion light years across. Now, how they figured this out, I have no idea. <laughs> the universe is 91 billion light years across. Some say, no, no, it's 150 billion light years across. Okay, take a tape measure. Stretch it across. Let's just say 91 billion. We'll be conservative. Light years. <laughs> now, you know, light, a light year is the distance that uh, the speed of light will travel in a year. And what is it, 186,000 miles a second light goes? So 186,000 miles uh, a second for a year is a light year. We're talking about 91 billion light years to cross the universe. We stretched a tape measure across it and now you put a mark at one point on the tape signifying the gravitational force. So right there at a, at a, at a particular point, you, you, you put a mark that signifies the gravitational force. Listen, if you were to move the mark just one inch in either direction, we could not exist. The earth as we know it could not exist. That's how precisely tuned the universe is. And there's, there's like 10 or 12 other uh, of these things that, that all scientists now are agreeing upon that th this is the reality, this is the precision. Uh, there's obviously a great diversity of opinion on why it is the way it is, but, but they're recognizing that it's like this. The Bible says that by him, by Christ, all things consist and are held together. He is the one who upholds all things. So you see, when we start to get this picture of who Jesus really is, the thought of going somewhere else becomes, you gotta be out of your mind to think that you're gonna go somewhere else. Where are you gonna go? He's the alpha, the omega. He's the beginning and the ending. He is, everything comes down to him. The, the Puritan theologian, John Owen, he said this, and I think it's so fantastic. He said, the fact, this fact abundantly shows the folly of those who enjoy life on earth and yet oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. His own power is the very ground that they stand upon in their opposition to him, and all things that they use against him consist in him. They exist absolutely at the pleasure of him whom they oppose and they act against him without whose continual support and influence they could neither live nor act for one moment, which is the greatest madness and the most contemptible folly imaginable. It's so true. When you listen to the rants of the atheist today, when you listen to those who are 
uh, just so filled with vitriol toward Christ and the things that they say. Uh, Owen is so right. He said, this is the height of madness. It's like, you know, chopping out from under you the, the, the foundation that you're standing on. But it's not unlike what happened back in Daniel's day. Remember with Belshazzar the king? You remember what happened with him? He was blaspheming the God of heaven. His grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. He had brought those uh, vessels, the cups and the bowls and things that were used in the worship of the true God. And he brought them back to Babylon at a certain time. Belshazzar, uh, many years later, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Belshazzar's in power. He's having a party. And he decides, we're going to um, worship the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone. And we're going to use these uh, vessels that were used in Jerusalem. We're going to mock the God of heaven. We're going to mock the God of Israel. And they began to do that. And then you remember the story. Suddenly there appears a, the hand of a man writing upon the wall. And Belshazzar rightly is, he's scared to death. His knees begin to smoke together, it says. And eventually they call for Daniel and Daniel comes in. And this is what he says to Belshazzar. He says, the God in whose very hand your breath is, you have failed to glorify. That's so true today. You see, you can't take a breath without the permission of Jesus Christ. It's his air. He made your lungs. You can't breathe. You can't do anything apart from him. And this is the point of the author. How could any of you think to go back to a dead religion? How could any of you think that you're going to go out into this world that's in revolt against its creator and find any fulfillment, any satisfaction, any peace, anything? No, you can't. He, it, it all comes back around to him. But now listen, here's where it gets even more astounding because the author is pointing us to the, the greatness of Christ as the as, as God the Son, but then he brings us to this when he had by himself purged our sins. And this is the most inconceivable part of it all. That this God who is, you know, I'm, I am doing no justice to trying to describe, in trying to describe who God is. You can't. I mean, somebody more eloquent than I will do a better job, maybe, but we still, anyone is going to fall so far short of who he is. But this person, this God, who owns everything, who made everything, who upholds everything, this God condescended to become a human being. And not just a human being, but one who would come and offer up a sacrifice for sin. And not just any sacrifice, but we know that he would offer himself a sacrifice. When he had by himself purged our sins. So he's the creator, he is the heir, he is the sustainer, and he is the redeemer. It's astounding. It's amazing. When he had by himself purged our sin, here's where the whole thing becomes, to me, absolutely inconceivable. Christ was at once priest and victim. 
priest to offer the sacrifice and victim to bear the sin, which was a defilement that must be purged away. So he, he by himself purged our sins. You know, he did it. The fact that he did it. Of course, he didn't have to do it. He could have by himself obliterated us because of our sins. You know, it's an absolute statement of God's mercy and grace that the world keeps going on. It's an absolute statement of God's mercy and grace that God continues to tolerate sinners, that he continues to put up with people. But he doesn't just tolerate us. He loves us. And he showed it in that one great act. He by himself purged our sins. And having done that, we are told that he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's the heir, he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the radiance of God's glory, he's the express image of his person, but he condescends, he comes down, he becomes a human being, and he dies a criminal's death, but he rises again, and he ascends back into heaven from whence he came, but now there's one difference. He goes into heaven as a man as a human being. And here's the mind-boggling thing. On the throne of God in heaven, there is a human being who is now sitting there as the ruler of the universe. He was always the ruler of the universe, but now he's ruling the universe as a human being who is also God. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. One writer said this. He said, the potent imagery of sitting on the cosmic throne has only one attested significance. It indicates Christ's participation in the unique sovereignty of God over the world. When we use the term God is sovereign, when we say, well, you know, God is sovereign, what do we mean by that? We mean that God is in control of everything. Well, whenever you say that, just remember, when you say that, what you're saying is that Jesus is in control of everything. That's what the scripture says. And notice that he sat down. And this is unique to a priest because one of the, the author's points here is to show how Jesus came as a better priest. You know what the priests never did? The priests never sat down. They couldn't. In the tabernacle where they ministered and eventually in the temple that was modeled after the tabernacle, there were furnishings, there was a lampstand, there was a table, there was an altar of incense, you know, there was the laver, there were the different things. Of course, there was the Ark of the Covenant, but what you would not find is a chair. Why? Because the work was never done. The fact that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God was a statement that the work is done. And the fact that he, as a priest, sat down on the throne is another amazing thing because the Old Testament prophets said that the Messiah would bring together the priesthood and the monarchy. You see, under the Old Testament system, you were, if you were a priest, you were of the tribe of Levi. If you were a king, you were of the tribe of Judah. And those things never blended. They never crossed paths. And if anyone presumed to take it upon themselves to blend those two, there was a judgment that came. Uzziah the king, uh, at one point, he was the king. He was from the, the line of Judah. At one point, he thought, well, I can offer sacrifice. What's the difference? You know, the priest, I can go in the temple. He went in the temple and did that. He was stricken with leprosy. It was a reminder that you couldn't cross those two things over because they were reserved for one. 
And that's what Jesus has done according to the prophecy of Zechariah that he would bring the priesthood and the monarchy together in himself. And that's what he's done. But it's not a priesthood after the order of Levi. It's a different priesthood that he will, the author will talk about. It's the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's sitting on the throne as our priest and as our king. He sat because the work is done, but he also sat, as God said, sit at my right hand, the place of honor and authority until I make your enemies your footstool. And that's what's happening, and we're living in the midst of it. We are living in the midst of a process where God is making the enemies of Christ his footstool. He is subjecting everything to Christ, and we're gonna see it realized one day. It's not here yet, but you can be sure it's coming. And so as we think about these things, seeing the supremacy of the Son of God, the question is this, how can we do anything less than give ourselves entirely to worshiping and serving him? And if I'm not doing that, it's obviously because there's some sort of a deficiency in my understanding of who Jesus is. Because if you get this, there's no moving you. There, there's no moving you. If you get who Jesus is, if you realize he's the alpha, the omega, everything was by him and for him. You are by him and for him. If you realize that, of course, you're going to, if you're in your right mind, at least, you're going to respond by, Lord, how can I do anything but, but worship you and serve you? And if you're not doing that, if you've drifted away from that, if you've been pulled away from that, if you're thinking that there's something else out there that I need to pursue or there's something better, or but you know, I've got these important things that I've got to do, it's you've lost sight of who Christ is. And you've got to get back. And that's what the author is telling these, these Hebrew Christians. And he starts off right here at the beginning. You're drifting because you've forgotten who this is. Christ is. Let me remind you so you can be where you need to be, where you, you only uh, should be in that place of total submission to him. And so uh, God help us to see Jesus for who he is. And I, and I really pray for myself and for all of us, that as we go about our life this week and this month and over the whatever time we have left, that this kind of stuff will just be etched in our minds, that this is the reality. And everything else that contradicts it, everything that opposes it, is just a brief thing that will pass and never return because everything is coming down to him.